0: You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, Bill Powers, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, recipient of the North Carolina State Bar John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, and a founding member of the Center for Legal Education and Advocacy.
1: Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Law Talk. I am joined today by Attorney uh, Caroline wingett Strauss. Good morning, afternoon. What is it, afternoon now?
2: Good afternoon.
1: <laughs> it's one of the um, we're in the last couple of weeks of 2021, and we're doing uh, a series of podcasts. we uh, kind of given the status of different things, and I thought a real interesting one would be today we've entitled the Top Five Tips for Custody. And these are intended to be somewhat big picture in nature. Uh, they're the things that we tell clients when we meet with you initially. It may be things that we tell you progressively as we go through representation. And sometimes it's necessary to remind people kindly uh, that these are good general ideas. So um, here's some, like I said, some general information regarding Um, overarching principles, and um, Caroline, you prepared us. You have a neat little um, acronym, so I'll let you (laughs) jump in here and tell me what you got. I love that.
2: Yeah, I think um, custody comes to the forefront of family law attorneys' minds during the holiday season because a lot of custody exchanges occur during the holiday season, and it's different from the typical schedule. So I thought it would be good around this time of year um, to talk about the things that um, I find important uh, and emphasize to my clients going through a child custody matter. And these, these tips aren't necessarily how to win your trial or um, how to outsmart the other side. These tips are uh, geared towards making the best outcome for your family and for your children and to establish an effective co-parenting relationship going forward. So before I delve into my tips, I wanted to kind of give you an overarching principle that all of these tips are guided by. And in fact, that the courts are guided by, and that's the best interest of the child. What the best interest of the child means is the court is always going to find or give a custody arrangement that is in the best interest of the child. Um, So we're thinking about the child's well-being, We're not thinking about getting back at the other parent. We're thinking about the ultimate outcome that creates a well-rounded little human being.
1: Right. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because, interestingly enough, we have a nice tie-in for the holidays, for Christmas. Uh, In the court system, in the case law that we see from the Court of Appeals, so occasionally these get appealed up, but you'll hear it in court. It's called the polar star the uh, North star, if you will. So if you want to think of the Christmas analogy and Oh, Holy night. And that the the star, the best interest of the children is that guiding light to the courts, to the attorneys and to the parents. That is that we need to focus on the best interests of the children and, uh, how we do that or how we get there. Um, I think are some of your particular points. So, um, and and I sometimes have clients talk about my rights and what I want. And while those are important, they're not the only things. In fact, the superseding right is.
2: Your child's right. Right. And that's what the court's going to look for if you do end up in court. But that right. leads us to our first tip, um, which is I always try to keep these matters out of court. Um, if you go to court, obviously, it's an adversarial process. so. I tell all my clients that the gloves are going to come off. The other side is going to bring all of your skeletons out of the closet. And in my opinion, that does not provide a good foundation for co-parenting and creating a nourishing environment for the child going forward. Um, That doesn't mean that you won't have a court order at the end of this process. It just means that we aren't going to go to trial. We're going to try to work it out outside of the courtroom. Um, And there are ways to go about that. There's the collaborative law process, Mm -hmm. um, which both Bill and I are, you and I are um, trained in. There's also what's called mediation. Um, And in mediation, you meet with a neutral mediator and each party has their attorney there. They have attorneys. And you try to come up with a plan with all minds involved um, that will best help the child. Um and in fact, if you do file a lawsuit, you have to go to mediation anyways. Um so the courts even prefer that these things get settled before they hear them.
1: Wait, uh a, a courtroom divorce lawyer doesn't want to go to court? Are you uh crazy? Or does that come from maybe um Having been there a little bit and seen some things, as my as my dad would say, I've the same my first rodeo. I've been there before. Yes, we are. Uh, I think I think our reputation is for being courtroom lawyers, and we we litigate things regularly. But it is a good idea, based on that experience, we think, to try to keep it out of court. And and you brought something up. Two things are really important: the collaborative process. I think is more than any other area of law that I've done, uh, this area of law, particularly with children, is where I think it's really best suited. Collaborative law means, uh, as I've heard judges say in court before, we have a judge in Charlotte who regularly says that. She'll say, "Come on, y'all," meaning, "Come on, let's get to, let's get together here. Come on, y'all, let's let's work through this." And the holidays can be tough because you know missed visit or late, and uh, or late pickup, late drop-off, and uh, unfortunately we occasionally see emergency orders being filed on the eve of things, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve, Eve, and uh, they're expensive to litigate. They're heart um, I guess uh, wrenching, if you will, not just for you, but for the children potentially, and I, I agree with you. I don't think the courts particularly like the back and forth the the bantering the sword play if you will I think the courts very much prefer you know the come come on y'all approach now um if if there is a preference I mean years ago people just assumed mom always got the children and dad got every other weekend and two weeks during the summer is that the case anymore Caroline or has that is there a preference now or a general kind of Yes. Theology in court with child custody issues.
2: Well, what you just described is the tender years presumption and that no longer applies right. um, legally speaking. Um, based on our experience and what I'm seeing today in court, I, most judges prefer if it's possible um, for the child to spend as much time as possible with both parents. I think the studies and psychologists um and everybody who's involved in you know a child's life all agree that participation by both parents um is most beneficial for the child going forward now when i talk about shared custody there are different iterations of shared custody um and there's different iterations of custody there first there's physical custody which is when uh who's Who stays with mom and who stays with dad and when? Legal custody is who who makes decisions on behalf of the minor child. Um, And then shared custody.
1: Well, we have, uh, let me jump in here because I think it's an important point out right now. Because what we're talking about are different types of custody. And we tend to, and we don't want to be inconsiderate of people here, if we refer to mom or dad. And the truth of the matter is, it could be. Uh, uh, parents of mom and mom or dad and dad, um, or whatever, as you, I like that word iteration. There's as many different types of relationships we have today in our society and culture. There are, uh, there's an understanding of the law that would be. And I want to back you up a little bit because you you've said some things here that I understand what you're talking about, but your average listener may be and not be. And that would be, you, you called it the tender years. And, um, The tender years um, generally have to do with when there's a particular, I guess for for lack of a term, susceptibility of the child and a need to be with one parent or another. So I'll I'll use a real basic one. Let's say um, mom is maybe breastfeeding the child or something like that, or maybe the child's in a NICU or a PQ unit. Then there's some, uh, there was a traditional idea that there was a, a value for having more important period of time a bonding period. Tell, tell, tell people are listening what you mean by that when you say the tender years or what was the kind of the old school old maybe common law philosophy on this?
2: Well, I mean, I think the old school philosophy that was that during those younger years when the child is breastfeeding or needing a lot of motherly attention, um, that custody would go to mom. Mm -hmm. um, that has since changed, um, and um, courts now recognize the fact that dads or other moms are equally as capable to take care of the child during that per- time period. Right.
1: And there are ways, I don't want to focus too much on breastfeeding, but there are other <laughs> ways to make sure the child's properly nourished. And that that's an, another big picture item right? when we talk about best interest. We talk about the mental well-being of the child, the physical well-being of the child or children. So it could be, are they getting food? Is the food appropriate? Are they seeing physicians or doctors, as the case may be? Do they have a roof over their head? Are they going to school and get an appropriate level of education? Do they have uh, valuable friend groups and familial groups and other parents involved in their life? It's meant to be holistic. It's meant to be um, approach in a way of looking at all the different assets that are available to the child. And some could be financial, some could be relationships. So you had mentioned there are different types of custody. There could be legal custody. Uh, there could be shared physical custody. There could be decision-making authority for certain types of issues like, well, uh, parent A uh, decides issues regarding sporting events. Parent B decides issues of uh, schooling Uh, Parent A and B um, share joint responsibility for um, religious upbringing and things like that. Again, this is it could be really, really, really complicated. So um, I think what you were saying, and and, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you on this, but I think you said there's kind of a a preference for shared custody in a sense of that both parents, A and B, whomever A and B may represent should be actively engaged in the child because that is in the best interest of the child from a developmental standpoint. Did I get it right?
2: Correct. That's not necessarily saying 50-50 custody, though I I see a preference towards that where the parents are living in close range with one another Mm -hmm. um, and can get along with one another. um, And there's no danger to the child at either house, right? right? But um, yes, the overarching principle I think these days is that the child benefits the most from spending substantial amounts of time with both parents.
1: Let me let me have hit you with a couple of possible exceptions to the rule. Like what if the parent A is a substance abuse person, meaning they're either drinking too much or using an excessive amount of legal or illegal uh, drugs. What if it's a a physically abusive environment? What if the children are not being properly supervised for long periods of time? One parent's working and they're leaving a small child at home. Um, Those are things you think about as well.
2: Oh, most definitely. Um, And that's oftentimes when we end up outside of, well, excuse me, um, that's when we end up in court um, because we need the judge to step in and protect that child. Um, And just recently I've had two cases where alcohol abuse is an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've crafted agreements that kind of give the person with the issue um, steps to prove him or herself um, in order to gradually gain custody back and prove their sobriety. So there are ways to protect the child within the, the custody agreement. Right.
1: I think it's fair to say that courts do not want children in dangerous environments. They don't want them subjected to illegal, abusive, and or unhealthy behaviors. Um, I'll tell you one thing: we've seen uh, not a lot of, but it's I, I thought we'd see more. But occasionally, uh, you know, who gets the COVID shot, who doesn't want to do the COVID shot, and who, you know, and I well, I actually, had one last year where one parent was less concerned about that and traveling and seeing lots of family and not really the allegation was not really taking many steps as precaution, social distancing, masks, whatever you want. And I'm not trying to weigh into the, the the strength or or, or the value of those things, but, um, you know, and another parent in that instance, you know, was much more restrictive and and it, it applied to sporting events and schooling and, and travel on airplanes and being in large groups of people. And, these are the type of things we deal with. In fact, that one we had last year was about this time. We did a there was a bunch of had a bunch of emergency hearings, and and it really um, uh, it can be problematic. So, you know, number one, um, try to stay out of court if you can.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, number two, uh, know or understand that there is a preference, or at least an assumption, that there would be some level of shared custody, whatever that may mean. You know, all kinds of little asterisks. Lawyers call them caveats. I mean, there are a million different exceptions to these. And what's number three, Carolyn?
2: Number three um, is keep the kids out of it. That means I always advise my clients, if the child is in your care, don't ask about what's going on at mom or dad's house. If the child is in your care, don't ask child to, give a message to mom or dad. Um, don't tell kids about what's going on in court, frankly. Um, don't show kids the allegations and the complaint. I think as much as you can, keep them insulated f- from this process because that will ultimately prove better for their well-being in the long, ter- long term.
1: And it may feel better to run someone down in the short term. And in the long term, not only is it not healthy to the child, but you may be called on the carpet uh, for disparaging uh, the other parent. The courts uh, regularly will put preventive orders uh, or protective orders saying you're not going to do this or don't want to see allegations that you're trying to turn one child away from a parent. And uh, so I I use the come on, y'all. Analogy um, from the beginning. I'm using another one that I've heard on more than one occasion. Is if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Meaning you may have uh, conversations with your co-parent, whether it's an ex-husband or an ex-wife or an ex-partner, uh, uh, under law or not under law. You, you don't have to be married to have these um, legally married to have these issues come up with children. Uh, but it's really a, a bad idea, both for the child and your own case, to be running down this person. It also, and there's been study after study on this, and we see this where parent A will say, "Tell your mama I I picked up Christmas this year, and I'm not going to be sending her to alimony," kind of deal. Or, oh. and you do not want to use the child, the child as an intermediary. You also don't want to be using a child as a tool or a weapon against the other. And this is it is so frustrating as legal counsel to deal with this because. You can see your client just walking towards the abyss. And you're like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're going to harm yourself. You're going to harm your child. So, right. number three is
2: keep kids out of it.
1: Okay. So, number four is, um, and this is not self serving. Um, uh, we say engage professionals if needed. Professionals may mean legal professionals, attorneys. Right. It may mean child custody counselors or experts, psychologists, psychiatrists. Um, physicians. I mean, if if there are things that are needed for the best interest of the child, you may have to employ different levels of professionals. So what do you mean by engaging professionals? Stephanie?
2: Right. And I, I was kind of thinking this, of this in a twofold um, idea. Um, number one, professionals for the children. Number two, professionals for the parents, right? right? So let's say your child is showing some behaviors that lead you to believe that he or she is having issues with this separation or with this two-parent household or two-household parenting arrangement, then I think it's a good idea to get the child psychologist on board to give your child a separate outlet um, to talk about his or her feelings um, and process what is going on in his or her life. Um, on the parent side of that, I'm talking about um Courts can appoint people like a parenting coordinator. Right. If you and your co parent cannot get along, this person can step in between and help you and the co parent make decisions um, on behalf of your minor child and try to come to an agreement.
1: And it's interesting you say it because I actually, one of my favorite things I think I've ever done professionally is serving as a best interest uh, attorney. Right. Which is the kind of the pre versus post adjudication or judgment type of parenting coordinator role, parenting coordinators for y'all in a way work like a, and I'm, I'm Bud's person, meaning that they, they serve with a certain level of discretion by court order and rather than going to court and argue about late visitation or support issues or, or in most of eh, that support's probably not a good idea, but the raising of the child or how the people are interacting. The Parent coordinator can direct or order certain things, um, to follow through. So there could be family counseling. It could be individually counseling for the child. There could be group counseling. There could be individual counseling for more of the parents. Uh, There are a lot of different um, ways of going about that. A best interest um, attorney is also, it tends to be by statute actually, by, they're called high conflict matters. It's where the parties are not getting along. Uh, There's some level of immediacy ordinarily that can't get to an adjudication meaning the court has not had been discovery yet or there haven't been interrogatories or depositions, but there needs to be some level of involvement from a neutral third party, the best interest counsel who um, coordinates in a way there is a technical legal difference. There are confidentiality issues. It's, it's really interesting, but um, that's what we mean by getting professionals in needed. And if you think, Hey, listen, I, I have tried getting along with this person, and we probably need some third party. You know, as an attorney, we advocate for our particular client. Your other spouse or uh, partner may have an attorney that advocates for them, them. And then there may be a third person that kind of works as the referee. Maybe that's the way to think about parenting coordinator of best interest is a referee who can call some fouls and throw some flags.
2: Yeah, I often imagine them in the referee outfit. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> you know the hard part, although I've seen my, uh, you don't have instant replay uh, at <laughs> Best Interest Council, but you do occasionally get some videos and things like that, which I have seen that as well in these type of cases. All right. So number five, um, and I see you did a bonus here, which I mm-hmm. uh, like that. So I'll call it five plus. But number five is?
2: No matter how well you and your co-parent get along, it's always our suggestion suggestion to get an order or an agreement in place. Um. For example, um, we recently had a case where it was an eight-year-old child. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. We're we're,
1: we're protecting confidentiality. (laughs) We'll speak in generalities. Let's say it's a younger child under the age of 12.
2: Yeah, we had a younger child under the age of 12 that the parents had gone quite a substantial amount of time without an order in place. Um, They were able to pretty effectively co-parent and pretty effectively come up with, a schedule for the child. However, something happened, and that co-parenting relationship kind of broke down. And what resulted in that was a lot of money spent on lawyers um, and a lot of stress for not only the parents, but the child who was unable to see one of his parents for six weeks, um, that could have been prevented if there had already been an order in place outlining where the child was staying and when the child, you know, was going to either parent's house. Um,
1: Well, and, and this is, I I feel like my role in this is to be the dumb it down guy. So I understand it. Um, But um, um, this is the, everything's good until it isn't rule. Meaning and and there's a reason why we mentioned ages because as children get older, the courts give them more—I um, call it agency—the more of a voice in the process, and the courts are more interested in not that they're not always interested in what uh, the best interest of the children. But as children get older, they may have a more a greater ability to express their opinion about I want to spend more time with mom or dad, said, you know, and, and better this or parent A or B, however we want to break it down, but um. We've seen agreements um, where parents are never married. They don't really see each other other than during a drop off and pick up. Everything's fine. Everything's uh, hunky-dory. Children, child is doing well in school. And then something comes up. Um, My child wants to go out for cheerleading or, you know, beauty pageants. And parent B says, I hate those beauty pageants. They're they're terrible for the child. Y'all are traveling all over the place. Uh, when they're gone, they're not getting the kind of schooling. And then there's this dispute, or you know, there's this really great opportunity to go to school B. And uh, I, while they're doing fine at, you know, Mecklenburg County B school, I want to send them to another program. And the parent says, "I don't want to do that." I like them being, you know, all their friends are at Group B, Their teachers are at Mac Group B. Um, so I think, and I agree with you, Caroline, the value of having these agreements, and they can get very complicated in on them themselves, um, or they could be big picture as well. But have a, a what, what, what do you call these, by the way, from a legal standpoint? And what do lawyers refer to these type of agreements that involve parents
2: and children? A custody order. <laughs> okay, just said children. <laughs> <laughs> a custody order, right.
1: Yeah. Um, and sometimes I refer to them as parent agreements or, or things like that. But it's not just in a sign-off between the parties. You can do that. But why do you like an order?
2: I like an order because it has a little bit of extra teeth. Right. So if one party is not behaving or acting badly, you can file – a motion for contempt, basically asking the court to admonish or punish the other side for not following the court order. Um, And going back on what you said, you know, as far as these issues coming up, if you don't have an order, if you do have an order, you have a framework in place for making these decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's a beneficial part of all of it. And, you don't have to follow the order to the T. In all of my orders, I put a term that says the parties agree that from time to time they may alter this order for the best interest of the child. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just nice to have that framework in place if there are issues.
1: Right. So I think this is a little bit of legalese, but what we're describing is a difference between just an agreement between the parties. And an agreement between the parties that's signed off by a judge who says, if you violate this, you you could be subject to civil and or criminal contempt. And we're not going to talk about civil and or criminal contempt today. It's a whole nother podcast. If you look on
2: academic involvement, (laughs) (laughs) we
1: actually have uh, an episode on that. I was um, joined by another excellent uh, family law attorney in Charlotte. Um, who uh, we went over that and I probably need to get her back on and and update that because family law has changed a lot um, with the case. There's been a lot of cases that have been coming out more than I can recall in the past. But okay, so let's go into the plus, the bonus round. Um, Go ahead, Carolyn.
2: Right. So um, my bonus round is to find an attorney who's an experienced parent. And I say this kind of based on my personal experience practicing as an attorney. Mm -hmm. I practiced for five and a half years, basically where I wasn't a parent. And now I've come back after being a parent for four years. And I feel like I'm more able to understand the practicality of these orders um, and kind of understand where the children are at in their life. Um, And I think if you find an attorney that has experienced these things as a parent, they're better better able to negotiate an agreement or argue for an outcome that is practical for you, but most importantly for your child in the future.
1: Yeah. And I think there's, in my mind, um, the practice of law is really, it's it's complicated and, and there's book learning. And then there is practical experience uh, this morning, I was, it's a, that's a great point, Henry, where I even really thought about. It. Just this morning, I was talking with a buddy of mine. He's an attorney in Raleigh. And uh, I remember it's been two or three years ago where I had a case. And I remember saying to the other side, of the litigants, this is going to be a tough year. The the child was junior year in high school. And junior year in high school, I mean, I don't know if you know this yet, but junior year in high school is a big year. right? And it's a year where... Uh, if you play athletics, there may be some decisions made lifelong dreams that may or may not come to fruition. Uh, junior year is the year where you take the SAT or ACT. And while it's not always required in all schools now anymore, it's the standard practice to take it. I took it once, maybe twice. now. <laughs> now <you can> take <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I took it when we used to click rocks together and had an abacus out for our math. But, um, and, and, I had just been through that at the time, within a couple three years, and my daughter, um, I call her Mookie Sarah. My daughter plays college athletics, um, and and I remember the process of the interviewing with the teams. And do we want to go Division One or Division Two or Division Three, or is that even realistic? That's another thing. And then, oh, you did well on the ACT or the SAT. Which school do you want to apply for, and what major? And junior year is a tough year, not because you're only you're just taking these courses
2: you're making decisions right and sometimes
1: um expectations have to be modulated i have a friend who this is what he does he, he is a guidance counselor privately that helps people um uh, explain the college application process which has become an incredibly complex labyrinth of different procedures and protocols and by the way if you want to add in the uh NCAA or collegiate level sports, it gets even more complicated.
2: Oh, well, I where, can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: because, um, you know, does GPA matter? Does it not matter? Uh, where, what, what position are you playing? Are you a scholarship athlete or are you non scholarship athlete? It is really, 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 really complicated. Point is, I think it helped me in working with, um, some people that I'd been through that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, I wish I had had someone pull me aside and say it. Um, and, and and the longer we practice law, at least I practice law, the more I feel my individual life experiences have helped me to give some context. I say to clients all the time, I'm trying. I'm not trying to judge or seem like a Mister Know It All. It just I think it helps to know why I say what I say, and I've been there. And um, and uh, that's not to say that there aren't very very good lawyers out there that have um, don't have children that can't be quite good. I just think in, 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 in your selection of attorney, I don't think it hurts to ask around a little bit and say, not only what is your legal experience, and, but your life experience and right. what's your philosophy. That, that applies to whether you want an attorney who tries to be more collaborative in nature, which we are admittedly very collaboratively oriented. Um, if you come to us and, and we perceive that you want to inflict pain through the courts, we'll probably recommend that you talk to some other attorneys and maybe look around because I, Caroline, what's your philosophy of using the courts to inflict pain?
2: It never ends well. Yeah. Even if you win. Yeah. For anybody.
1: (laughs) And there are costs. I always am reminding people, and this is in criminal cases and family law cases, there are costs associated with litigation. And this comes from somebody who's spent a lot of years duking it out in court. Um, there emotional cost. There are a cost of the attorney. their are a cost of getting a result that you don't necessarily like or want. So um, maybe do as a wrap-up and, uh, and, and our time here on law talk. is Caroline maybe, maybe hit us with these, these five points?
2: I sure will. Our first point is to try to keep it out of court. Our second point is to know that the preference generally these days is for shared custody. Our third point, and maybe our most important point, is to keep the kids out of it. And know number four that you can always engage professionals if you need it. And remember that even if you and the co-parent are getting along great, it's always a good idea to get an, a parenting order or agreement in place. And then our bonus round <laughs> um, is to find an attorney who's an experienced parent. Um, And I think that wraps it up for us. And I think it gives you a good overview of what our firm finds important um, in this process.
1: Well, thank you so much, Caroline, for joining us. If you have questions or topics for Law Talk and Law Talk um, is intended as an educational resource, if you have an individual legal question want to seek some sort of uh, formal opinion or advice, we recommend you speak with an attorney. If you have topics of conversation, whether it's policy, laws, how things work in court, um, the legal profession, heck, if you're a law student want to know information about even whether you should go to law school, that's what Law Talk is for. Give us a ring at 704-342-HELP at 704-342-4357.
0: You've been listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers. Your resource for legal issues and legislation, practice tips, professionalism, and policy discussions. Want to talk to Bill Powers? Call 704-342-HELP. That's 704-342-4357. Law Talk with Bill Powers is an educational resource only. The information presented does not constitute legal advice and is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. Every situation is unique. Therefore, you should always consult with a licensed attorney before making any legal decision.